1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we continue um, our exposition, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Our focus this morning will be verses 6 through 13. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Title of the message, Mistaking the Not Yet for the Already. Mistaking the Not Yet for the Already. And before we look at it, let us go before the Lord and ask for his help to understand Heavenly Father, we pray now by the resident presence of your Holy Spirit um, that you would grant to me the gracious ability to communicate your holy, inspired word. Grant grace to your people to hear. Bring to life those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. And sanctify the church, we pray by way of the truth. This morning we ask, for Christ's sake, amen. Um, What is the Christian life supposed to look like? Um, Throughout church history, um, entire movements have begun in reaction to things that were not the way those particular people thought they should be that is behind those movements. For instance, as D.A. Carson points out in his commentary, um, in times of war, famine, and social disruption, it's not uncommon for untaught Christians to adopt a form of defeatism and cry, it is the end. You know, kind of like you know, throwing in the towel and like the Thessalonians, basically quit life, climb up to the top of a mountain somewhere and look for Jesus to return. Alternately, when things are going reasonably well, again to quote Carson, um, and when the general mood is success-oriented and society is stable, untaught Christians adopt a form of triumphalism. Um, A not-so-subtle delusion that exists in many corners of evangelical Christianity today. 
teaching as they do that the Christian life is a quantum leap into triumphing glory. You become a Christian, and it is this quantum leap into a triumphant, glory-filled life. The bottom line um, in, in triumphalism um, is the belief that the gloriously perfected victories that we will experience only in the age to come are available to us now. And many go astray, claiming victories in the present that result in their freedom from you know, persecution, suffering, insult, assault, with material blessings to boot as triumphant Christians. Triumphalism. It's the notion that since I am a child of the king, I have the right to his fortune here and now. To live with financial prosperity and complete physical health. Today, there's a whole movement of professing Christians who agree that there are secret keys to be found in what's known as the higher life, hyper-spirituality, um, a, a victorious, more powerful, um, um, super-spiritual, conquering Christian life. Second blessing, breakthrough experiences to prosper financially, in other words, your best life now theology, which inevitably leads to the false gospel that Jesus Christ died to open the way to your prosperity here and now. And then they'll take verses, as we focused on this morning in Sunday school, out of context, verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And they apply that to the individual Christian today. And it's not intended for the individual Christian today. That was spoken to an entire group of Israelite people ready to go into 70 years of exile, as we were reminded this morning. So they hijack verses from the Bible, they twist them, they abuse them. Now, all that having been said, beloved, this isn't to encourage some form of defeatism in the Christian life today, you know, that fails to embrace every act upon which the good and glorious blessings that have been secured for us in Jesus Christ are indeed ours, but rather a perspective held by all the New Testament writers, described by theologians as the already not yet condition of the Christian life. Are you with me? And, and yes, already we have new life in Christ. Already we are completely forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Already we've been swept into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Already we are sealed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment and guarantee of our full inheritance but it's not fully experienced yet. It's already yours in this inaugurated kingdom, but not in the fullest extent that is in its consummation. So numerous blessings of God we enjoy right now as Christians, but there is much that is not yet. There is much that awaits the world to come. Okay, the, the presence of sin is not yet removed. Anybody? <laughs> that old man sticks to me like a dead man. Right? Freedom from suffering has not yet been realized. Amen. Freedom from sickness not yet eliminated. Costly discipleship has not yet ended. So there's tension, needless to say, hopefully needless to say, there is tension between the already and the not yet. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 3 in verse 22. 
Why do you boast in men, right? All things belong to you now. Paul is yours now. Apollos is yours now. Cephas is yours. Notice, the world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. Things present are yours. Things to come are yours. All belong to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. They're yours now, but not in the fullest sense. Amen? This world is yours, but not in the fullest sense. Already, but not yet. Already in a positional sense, not yet in a full consummated sense, but they're yours, and there is tension. Paul here is addressing the Corinthians' fundamental mistake of an over-spiritualized, that is, an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology means last things. Eschaton means the ultimate last thing. The fulfillment of all things. That is, they thought too much of the not yet was theirs already. Are you with me? So they concluded that as Christians, we have all we want. We're rich. We've already begun to reign. We are wise. We are strong. We are honorable. And the key word in the text, I think, sums up this view of of the fullness of all blessings in Christ for the here and now is repeated twice in verse 8, and it's the word already. Already. Your best knife now already. So Paul here um, wants to introduce... Um, these Corinthians, to a category um, that either they were not familiar with or didn't want to be familiar with. And that is the not yet. One of the things that will happen to you as a Christian if you buy into the Corinthians' mistake is that first, um, you, you will either deceive yourself into thinking that in fact you are indeed a cut above the rest. You're a spiritual, hyper, super, conqueror, uh, above all and beyond other Christians in your life. You begin to boast. That's what they were doing. In their super spirituality. And they would look down upon others. On the other hand, if you buy into this nonsense and rhetoric that's being peddled today, um, you will conclude that your failure to reach your best life now, it's all your fault. You're a wretched failure because you don't have enough faith. That's why you're suffering. You need to claim it in the name of Jesus. Claim it now. Because words, they say, have what? Power. So speak it into reality. That's utter nonsense. You know, why do you struggle to make ends meet? Because of your weak faith. You need a breakthrough, they say. You ever heard that? Where does this language come from? Not from the Bible. Breakthrough theology? What is that? See, the Corinthians thought they had really arrived, which negatively affected how they lived. And as a result, factions within the church developed chapter 1. Flagrant sin was tolerated within the church. Church discipline was not exercised, chapter 5. They were taking one another to court, chapter 6. And while they were indeed abounding in the gifts of the Spirit, love and unity were sacrificed on the altar of them perceiving themselves as these you know, self-exultant, you know, super-spiritual-conquering kings of the church, chapters 13 and 14. Okay, so what then does the Christian life look like? Well, in this passage, Paul provides for us by way of divine inspiration an answer to the question. Now, it's not all that the Lord has to say about the matter, but it is of profound importance and foundational for every Christian around the world to this very day. But in our day, especially in America, it is disregarded, um, very unpopular, and a very rejected component to the question, what is the Christian life supposed to look like? Much for us to learn, amen. 
So Paul, remember, has repeatedly reminded the Corinthians of the content and the centrality of the gospel, warning them again and again about the dangers of worldly influence within the church, worldly wisdom, worldly ethics. They were trying to import all of those things into the church. It doesn't work. The gospel, in other words, was not correctly functioning in their lives. It did not have a noticeable shaping effect on their Christian walk. So he reminded them of their identity in Christ. You're saints. Go live like it now. Then he breaks down from chapter 1, and again, as I said, in weeks past, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through chapter 4 is one unit of thought. And he's just breaking and chopping this thing up for their understanding because they're filled with what? Pride. Spiritual pride. So here we come to the conclusion now of this section where Paul digs deeper and wants to point out the cause of their pride. The the, the gospel uh, message and the gospel ministry for which they do not correctly understand. They're given to self-glory. Inflated egos. Grand opinions about themselves. And thus the warning back in verse 18, let no one what? Deceive himself. You know, Proverbs 13.10 says, by pride comes contention. Anytime there's contention in a church, anytime there's strife within a church, you can trace it back to pride. This is what he's trying to uproot. So Paul goes on here to rebuke these Corinthians um, for their spiritual pride, their misunderstanding of a cross-centered orientation to this life in verses 6 through 13. And notice he talks about them being puffed up, verse 6. Arrogant, puffed up. And at this point, beloved, Paul, he throws all subtlety out the window. The gloves come off, his pastoral gloves come off, and he's ready to choke them out. It's right here. It's right here. This section, that is verses 6 through 13, is filled with dripping sarcasm. If you miss the sarcasm and you're a non-sarcasm kind of prude about addressing false teaching and erroneous doctrine, you will miss the intent of this passage. It'll go right over your head because it is designed to sting these Corinthians. Are we ready? That's our introduction. Verse (laughs) 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. So he says these things, brethren. What things? Those things he taught back in chapter 3 and verse 5. And following. That is the nature of the Christian minister. We are servants, laborers, builders. Don't divide yourselves among men. And notice, don't exceed that which is written. Now I take that to refer to the sufficiency of Scripture. God has revealed to us everything we need to know as his people by way of his word and his word alone. Test all things in light of Scripture. Hold fast to that which is true. It's authoritative, something that cannot be added to. They were trying to add the philosophies of the world and the rhetoric of the day to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. That's it. The cross, again, is the eye of the needle through which all the promises of God come to his people. You go to church and they don't preach Christ, they don't talk about a bloody cross, run for the hills. So he says, don't be puffed up in behalf of one against another. Why? Because attaching themselves to one man, they inevitably set themselves up against other people in the congregation who were teaming up with another man. And although it wasn't the preacher's fault, they had nothing to do with this. 
It was the Corinthians saying, I'm of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, and so on. So now, Paul is going to provide the remedy for pride, applicable to all of us. And there's three questions. He raises three questions that ought to destroy, destroy any notion of pride within the child of God, if those questions are answered scripturally. Verse 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Okay, which is to say, look, your next breath comes from God. It's a gift. He closes his hand, your life is over. So we might par paraphrase this. What makes you so special, Corinthians? You know, who do you think you are? Asked Paul. Now, the Corinthians did think themselves to be quite special. <laughs> boasting in their own wisdom, boasting in their own leaders, boasting in their own spirituality, boasting in their own gifts. All of these things are revealed as we work our way through Corinthians, as we shall see. They thought themselves to be a cut above other Christians. Everything's due to God's providence. We, we need to apply this. Everything you have, opportunities that come to you in this life, are all by the hand of God's providence. As I said earlier, I think in Sunday school, your IQ is from God. Yes, yeah, some of you are smarter, definitely, than me, but that's a gift to God. You can't, how can you boast in your IQ? Man alive. No matter how hard you've worked or how hard you've studied, what family you come from, good stock, not so good stock, it's all by the providential hand of God. You have nothing to boast about. And furthermore, we have salvation. We have eternal life. You've been regenerated. That's a gift of grace alone. You can't boast in that. Now, if you adhere to an Arminian theology, then you've got something to boast about. Amen? No man can boast. Your faith is a gift. It all comes from God. Paul is peeved with these Corinthians. Why do you boast as if you had not received it. Now remember, the Corinthians, again, can't drive this home enough. They thought that the best way to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ was in the terminology of the day, rhetoric of the day, sophistry of the day, Hellenistic, that is Greek philosophy of the day, and they tried to couple it with the gospel. Do we see things like this today? Do we? Oh, yes, we do. I could tell you, a I watch false teachers on these TV things to keep up with what they're saying. I could not believe what I heard last night from a woman preacher. I could not believe what I heard. That angels are at your beck and call. And if you're saying, man, I'm struggling with poverty, um, I'm in poverty. As the angels hear, they have to carry out what you command. So if you say you're in poverty, then they have to say, well, then we can't do anything about that. They're in their poverty. So you have to demand it. You see this lunacy? It was last night at 10 o'clock. My wife was in bed, and I was like... And poor, these, these people watch this and they buy into it. That's the rhetoric of the day. The strategy of the enemy, Satan, is to masquerade as an angel of light. And if Satan masquerades in an, as an angel of light through or behind religion, guess what? His servants disguise themselves as false te as teachers, preachers, apostles. It's a disguise. They replace the gospel with smooth-talking, man-centered reason and philosophy. Paul says, no. Do not exceed that which is written because it will only lead you away from the truth, not into it. He's breaking them down. 
Don't go beyond what is written. Friends, the responsibility of the pastor in the church of Jesus Christ is clear. 1 Peter chapter 5, listen to this. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Of those allotted to your charge, feed them. Exercise authority. Exercise oversight. Be a living example. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Feed my people, said Jesus. Again, the strategy of Satan to masquerade as an angel of light is to create a a group of men who disguise themselves as preachers who lead you away from the truth. That's the strategy of darkness. If anybody reads Table Talk magazine, this month, on the front cover, it's entitled... A field guide from the abyss, a training manual for demons. And this, of course, is in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's famous screw tape letters, okay? So follow me here. So in context to the word of God and the enemy's strategy, it goes like this. And I'm quoting a, a, a head demon speaking to other demons, okay? That's the idea. Quote, our strategy is to unleash a full-scale frontal assault on the word of our enemy. Okay, context, of course, their enemy is God. Okay, these are demons talking. Persuade preachers. This is the school of of the demons, okay? Go and persuade preachers to doubt the flawless purity of the word. Make pastors think that their job is to fill pews and not the pulpit. Seduce them into thinking that they should be trendy communicators, not Bible commentators, Convince preachers to spend more time exegeting the culture, not the Bible. Entice them to cite certain trends of the day, not timeless teachings of the ancient book. Bewitch them into assuming that theology is irrelevant to the practical realities of their congregation. Blind those pastors into thinking that the majority vote of the congregation is the highest authority. End of quote. Yeah, generally speaking, you let the congregation call the shots, and pretty soon you're forced to peddle a Corinthianized gospel because that's what people left to themselves want. That's what they desire. So for preachers, for church leaders to be duped by the strategy of the doctrine of demons the people who sit under them will be duped by a false view of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. It's all triumphalism now. A quantum leap into triumphing glory now. So name it and claim it. So verses 8 through 13, beloved, flies in the face of a triumphal, over-spiritualized view of Christian life, as we shall see. So here, Paul uses irony and sarcasm to drive home his point. Now, some people don't like sarcasm. The Bible's filled with it. If you don't like it, that's your problem. This is dripping with sarcasm, and and Scripture uses sarcasm as a tool to expose folly and idolatry. This is what we see Paul doing. And he's going to provide through it a more accurate description of what the Christian life looks like, at least for him and the other apostles. So notice he contrasts the triumphant, self-assured, vainglory of these Corinthians with a cross-centered life. That is the cross-centered lives of the apostles. Verse 8. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you would become king so that we also might reign with you. So so notice that his sarcasm is emphasized in the word already. You're already filled, literally glutted, as in gluttony. 
Oh, you're just filled up to the top. You've already arrived, Corinthians. You've already become rich. And he's not talking about material wealth here, by the way. It's in context of chapter 1, verse 5. That is, they're rich with the gifts of the Spirit. They were loaded. Gifts come by way of what? Grace. It all comes from God. Yo, you're already filled. You've already become kings without us. You know, the preachers, you've become without us. You've arrived. And, you know, I wish we could share in the rain with you. You hear this sarcasm? And then he ratchets, he, he, he ratchets up the sarcasm with each line. You know, I, I, I wish that you had become kings. Oh, I wish. In other words, I wish the kingdom were here in its fullness. That way we could reign with you, you super conquerors. Instead of being beaten and battered for the gospel. That's our reality. You know, we, we could be co-reigning with you all. So Paul's sarcasm draws out here a point. Look, you think you've arrived and have attained this, this kingly level already? And we suffer for the gospel? You know, if we could only ascend to the position that, that you have already attained, then we wouldn't have to suffer so much. Notice the apostles' already reality, verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, least of all, as men condemned to death. You superheroes. I mean, what a contrast, right? Notice, he says, uh, God has made us an exhibition. In other words, he's put us on display and we're least of all, or last of all, rather. Uh, last of all doesn't mean uh, least of all men. It's a more, much more technical than that. It's the idea of a triumphal parade of a military general who's just conquered a people, and he's bringing in, in behind, you know, in his, on his train behind him, he, he's coming into a city triumphantly with, with a string of prisoners behind him. Okay? The ones in the front will be used as slaves. The ones in the back were condemned to die, to be thrown to the gladiators, to be thrown in the arenas with wild beasts and so on. That's how we're viewed, says Paul. God has put us on display as though we are condemned to die. In other words, you triumphal glory hounds who already sit on the throne reigning, we are in dungeons ready to be thrown out to wild beasts. We're last in line. That's the idea. So much for the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is the already reality of the apostolic ministry, and it's not glorious. It's not some triumphant ministry where, you know, Paul's getting fitted for an Armani suit. And he stands in front of 10,000 people as those people fawn over him. That's not his ministry. I'm condemned to die. He wasn't given a fat salary gilded chariot, crowds swarming and applauding him. They were crushed. You know what Paul means here? Look, I'm a captive, all right. I'm a captain of the conquering king, Jesus Christ. I'm his captive, led in his ministry, the end of which is death, just like my king. That's my ministry, you super-conquering Corinthians. See, all of this flies in the face of this Corinthianized, triumphant Christianity, this brand of Christianity we see being peddled today. They adopted the, the high and lofty superiority of speech and wisdom, chapter 2, verse 1, remember? High and lofty speech, sophistry, philosophy, 
rhetoricians who would pass through town. They'd go to the local coliseum or they'd go to the local amphitheater and they would speak rhetoric in order to try to persuade how you think. And they said, that sounds sweet. That's smooth talk, man. None of this gross cross stuff. Let's mesh that with the gospel of Jesus. They weren't flat out in denying Christ. Let's adopt some smooth talk. What did Jesus say to his disciples? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it in the not yet, received in the already fully made manifest in the not yet. Now, this is not the idea of taking up your burdens and following Jesus, you know, that cantankerous boss of mine. It's the cross that I bear. My mother-in-law, it's the cross that I bear. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about your daily burdens. The cross was an instrument of execution, public execution. To carry it meant you're going to die. Christian ease can be so shallow. Amen? Jesus is demanding total commitment from his followers. That is life and death devotion. All who come to Christ with self-renouncing faith, in other words, you agree, I can't save myself. There's no, I'm not good enough to do anything to find favor in the sight of God. Those who lose their life, poor in spirit will receive true eternal life in Christ alone. That's the cross. That's the cross. That's not a popular message in America today, friends. The core bare bones gospel is not popular, but a Corinthian and a Corinthianized gospel spin is very popular. Would you agree with me today? Is there anyone? Oh no, never mind. Would you agree that that's the norm today? A Corinthianized gospel spin. Smooth talk. Oh, you got to name Jesus, but don't talk about this kind of life. And don't mock false teachers. Oh, for heaven's sake. You know, we need a theology that says I'm filled and I'm fat and I'm happy and I'm rich and I'm blessed. I'm king and I reign now. Not Paul. I think I got worked up from watching that false teacher last night. <laughs> I could not believe, I've never heard that. Angels are God's messengers. They have to do what you say. As a matter of fact, you have to command them. But that, that woman is a preacher. Guess what? There's no such thing as woman preachers called by God. That's your first clue. Notice, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. A spectacle. It's the Greek word theatron from where we get theater. It's the picture of Paul standing there, being stared at, jeered, mocked, harassed, spectacles. Anyone, anyone want to be a Christian? That's his life. A spectacle also to the cosmic world, apparently. I, I really don't know what that means. You think of the demonic realm and all that. I, I don't understand it, to be quite honest. In other words, the world does not look at me, says Paul, or the other apostles, and applaud us. We're not respectable, honorable men in their sight. They mock us. Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be what? Saved. Perseverance of the saints. He'll preserve you 
to the end. You die by the sword, I don't know if I could stand, you know, and, and bear the sword and, and, and be threatened if I, if I don't renounce Christ. I don't know if I could do it. Guess what? I've said this before. You don't get that grace till you need it. So you don't need to worry about it now. Amen? You may think, man, pressed against a wall with a sword at my throat, I may renounce the name of Jesus. He'll grant you the grace at the, t- at the time to start singing hymns, probably, or preach the gospel to your enemy. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. You super-conquering Corinthians, we're fools. Utter fools. Look, friends, the world is not going to consider you a fool because you, um, you know, follow the ethical teachings of Jesus. You know, you follow the golden rule. They're not going to condemn you for loving your neighbor as yourself, especially if you're the neighbor, if they're the neighbor. Amen? They'll say, rah, rah. No, we're not talking about that. To trust in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, return, Trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, they will view you as an idiot, an imbecile. We are fools for Christ's sake, says Paul. That is from the world's perspective, we're fools. You super conquering, triumphal Corinthians who reign now. You're so prudent. You're so prudent in Christ. Notice, we are weak, but oh, you're so strong. Oh, you're distinguished. We're without honor. You're so sensible. Verse 11, notice. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. Okay, remember, Paul is writing the Corinthians from Ephesus. And we've been through Acts. You know what he's experienced for the sake of the gospel, amen? Beaten with rods, whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, over and over again. That's the context which he speaks. To the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated and are homeless. Now, that phrase, roughly treated, is used in the Gospels to describe the treatment that our Lord Jesus Christ endured. Super-conquering, triumphal Corinthians. Verse 12, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. There's another word, rivaled, or reviled, rather. Used with regard to the experience of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, reviled. Verse 13, when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the, we have become the scum of the world, you triumphal Corinthian super conquerors. Scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. Now, scum is what's left over when you wash something off. Refuse, graphic imagery. If you ever worked in, I could come up with a number of things, but if you've ever worked in a, in a restaurant, you have, to, you have to clean out the grease trap. Or you have to dig out the, the drain in the shower. Ugh. That's how the world views us, you super triumphal conquering Corinthians. <laughs> you love this? I love this. Puts me in my place, to say the least. You mighty, kingly, super spiritual, distinguished bunch, the world looks at us like scum. Stuff in the drain. Something you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. Now, friends, as we read this, we may be tempted to say, well, yeah, but that has to do with Paul's unique call as an apostle. Well, you can look on. We won't get to this today. But if you notice, um, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. To admonish you. Verse 16, therefore, I exhort you, Corinthians, to be imitators of me. 
Verse 17, I'm going to send Timothy, my beloved child in the faith, um, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. So it applies to you all, he says, you super triumphal conquering Corinthians. (laughs) Wow, what an indictment. In other words, it applies to all believers. So don't follow these false loons that appear on your television. You test what they say. In other words, the Christian life is not some giant um, cosmic leap into triumph and glory. This is the already reality. You don't get the not yet until you enter glory. So there's a tension while we dwell here. So if you're suffering, look, you know, and and, and you're struggling, and one of these super-conquering triumphalists comes along and says, you just don't have enough faith. You need to speak it. What do you say? Let me show you what the word really means by what it says, and if they don't accept it, so I love you, you know, but you need to go home. Don't buy into it. Now, the Corinthians are not going to get it. Do do, do you think you'd come to your senses by a letter like this? You would think. When he writes 2 Corinthians, my wife brought this text out to me the other day. She goes, are you going to do 2 Corinthians after first? I says, I don't think so. She goes, well, look. It was in a devotional she was reading. 2 Corinthians 11.3, which I had forgotten about. So I called her the other day and said, what was that verse again? It's this. I am afraid writes the apostle, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. Deceived Eve by his craftiness. Has the Lord really said? What's so bad about smooth talk? What's so bad about meshing a little bit of philosophy of the day with the gospel? What's so bad about that? I mean, has God really said? So Paul, like a loving father chastening his children, says to to, to this group who, by the way, loathed him, I mean, interestingly, but oh so sadly, the Corinthians despised Paul. This is their founding pastor. He loved them. He's trying to nurture them. He's trying to change the way they think, and they despise him. But he's a loving father chastening his children. We'll see next time. They hated him. Why? Because he continued to present a cross-centered life. That's why. The Bible says in Acts chapter 14, it says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of, of God. Through what? Through what? Many tribulations, which is to say, beloved, newsflash. The great tribulation is not some seven-year period at the very end of history, but it thus far is 2,000 years old. The day in which we live in America, not suffering like this, is really an anomaly. Very rare. But culture's ratcheting it up a bit to where you and I are more and more despised by an unbelieving culture. What's to come? Only God knows. We will continue to preach the cross of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel. If you're not in Christ, repent and come to Christ and you too shall be saved. Renounce your self-righteousness. I can do this on my own. God helps those who help themselves. Someone actually said that to me the other day. They think it's in the Bible. Oh, I'm not kidding you. 
He was talking about his loved one I asked about who I knew back in 2005. Um, His son was a professing believer in Jesus Christ. Now he denies the faith. He says, you know, he just determined that, you know, uh, Jesus was there to kind of get him going. And now he realizes that God helps those who help themselves. I'm like, where on earth do you get that? Where's that from? First or second hesitations? Where do you get that? (laughs) Oh, the book of imaginations. No, it's not in the Bible. It's not? No, it's not. We preach Christ and him crucified. The only way to be justified before God. So friends, let me say this. No Christian is exempt from this kind of trouble, trial, or persecution. Amen? This life is not a quantum leap into triumph and glory, but it's a tension between the already and the not yet. May we not make the mistake that the not yet is the already. May we not make that mistake. And the more we focus upon, and I close now, the more we focus upon the truth, the more we focus upon the substance of truth, Jesus Christ and his cross, Christ crucified, um, the demonstration by which is both of the power and wisdom of God, right? The cross is the power and wisdom of God. We read that earlier. The more we focus on that, the greater our growth will be here and now. And when the already is consummated and the not yet is ushered in in full glory, then, listen carefully, then... The waiting will be over. Every sorrow will be healed. All the dreams it seemed could never be will all be real. And he will gather us together in his arms of endless grace as his bride forever when we see his glorious face. But not until then. Amen? Let's pray and then let's sing that. Father, we do thank you for this sobering reminder. Um, Help us um, to attend um, to the realities um, of gospel life, the Christian life, knowing um, all that we do have here and now, no doubt. But we may may not make the mistake of the Corinthians thinking that the not yet is indeed the already. Keep us from pride. Help us to test all things in light of scripture and cling to, to the glorious cross of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.